Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we are meeting at the Minnesota Historical Society in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's a beautiful facility and uh, a lot of researchers visit this facility to do work on the Midwest. Our guest today is David Grabitsky, who is the Director of Field Services and Outreach to Outstate Minnesota from the Minnesota State Historical Society. Welcome, David. Good morning, John. Thanks for taking the time this morning. Uh, we, many of us who work in the Midwest, are very much aware of the work of the Minnesota Historical Society. It's a beautiful facility. Um, it uh, draws in a lot of researchers. Can you tell us a little bit about the Minnesota Historical Society and its operations? Sure. Uh, Minnesota Historical Society, founded in 1849, nine years before the state uh, came into being. Uh, has been around a long time and, and working with local historical organizations and so on uh, throughout its 160 plus year history. Uh, my particular role here uh, was founded in 1916, so a little over 100 years in this program, and it's mainly meant to help Minnesotans in their communities do the same things that the Minnesota Historical Society does. In general terms, the Minnesota Historical Society is a full or a comprehensive uh, history enterprise um, offers quite a bit from publishing and exhibits and uh, programs and field services and archaeology and just about anything you can think of uh, related to the work of history. Can you tell us what is meant by the term field services? Well, field services was a term that Reuben Goldthwaites uh, developed in the state of Wisconsin for the State Historical Society of Wisconsin in 1896. Uh, when he began uh, working on that. And what it, it meant was that he would send someone out. Um, often it was him. He, he wanted to have a full-time person, but in the early years, it was Thwaites himself who went out to various communities in Wisconsin. One of the students at the University of uh, Wisconsin-Madison uh, was a fellow named Solon Buck, uh, who then went to Illinois and worked under Clarence Albert and really learned how to approach uh, people in, in local communities to help them preserve their history. He was named the uh, first superintendent, what we would call executive director or CEO these days, um, here at the Minnesota Historical Society in the late fall of 1914. And uh, it was he who began field services here in Minnesota uh, in 1916 by hiring Francis Fisk Holbrook, who uh, was an MA candidate at the University of Minnesota, uh, and in the first year of operation uh, was able to visit 23 out of our uh, then 86 counties. Uh, today there are 87. You mentioned uh, Reuben Gold Thwaites, uh, who was this famous historian at the Wisconsin Historical Society over in Madison, um, who pioneered a lot of work in field services and, uh, and, and trained Solon Buck, who ended up here at the Minnesota Historical Society. Is it a fair statement to say that field services uh, originated in the Midwest, in Wisconsin and Minnesota? Well, that's the conclusion of uh, Tom McKay, uh, who's a very fine historian from, uh, well, he 
currently is retired in the in the Quad Cities uh, area, but uh, for many years worked at the State Historical Society of Wisconsin, and, and in 1996 um, wrote a series of articles for the exchange newsletter that went out to local historical organizations and uh, was able to demonstrate that that Reuben Goldthwaites was the one who started it and Thwaites uh, admired the the border-to-border -border service model of the University of Wisconsin system and so this was really taking that concept and applying it to a state history enterprise and after that, Thwaites then visited many places and encouraged other state history enterprises to adopt that. And in a speech, and I think it was about 1903 in, in Iowa City, mentioned uh, you know that that Wisconsin and Iowa and Illinois, uh, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, a few other places, uh, were already beginning to do this. And so. It, what field services has become is one of the oldest public history professions in, uh, in the land, and it originated here in the Midwest. The uh, Wisconsin Historical Society and the Minnesota Historical Society, where we are today, seem to be extremely strong organizations who have, which have deep roots and have become famous for all the work they do to revive history. And they seem much stronger than... Um, history organizations in other states um, in the West for example and and some other places that I've worked over the years um, why do you think that uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin have such a rich tradition of studying and promoting their history well I, I really think it comes from those homegrown historians that uh, came to the Wisconsin Historical Society uh, Reuben Goldthwaites becoming the superintendent there and really making a connection between uh, the public and the private and and all of us are public-private uh, partnerships to one degree or another here in the five-state region around Minnesota Minnesota Historical Society is the only state history enterprise that is not a state agency uh, we, we are a nonprofit um, we're tasked with certain statewide responsibilities by the legislature, and at times we behave kind of like a state agency, but it, we really are not. We're, we're simply a, a, a nonprofit like many of our peers across the state, our county historical societies and so on. Um, and I think it's that real strong bond between uh, having an equity funder, someone who wants us to serve each and every person who is interested in Minnesota, uh, whether they call it home or they're simply interested in, in what happens here, um, to, to treat them all equally and well. We are talking today with David Grabitsky, the Director of Field Services at the Minnesota Historical Society, who is telling us about many of the activities of the Minnesota Historical Society. One of the other uh, tasks that you he you have here at MHS is to publish books and you have a very robust program um, a, a robust publishing program can you tell us a little bit about that and some of the books that you have published in in recent decades um, the Minnesota Historical Society is a, a very large uh, institution um, you know, some 700 plus people work for it, making it one of the largest uh, staffed state history enterprises in the land. Um, the The press here has done a remarkable job over the years. In fact, it's one of our oldest uh, discrete programs here at the Minnesota Historical Society, uh, dating back to a partnership with the Smithsonian 
institution to publish uh, back in, in the 1850s. And uh, these days, um, it is a, a, a program uh, under the care of Greg Britton uh, years ago and now Pam McClanahan and, and uh, again in transition now uh, that is, uh, has found ways to, to, to make the, the publication arm a very strong one uh, financially and intellectually. Earlier, David, you mentioned um, Solon Buck. Um, I would like to talk about him a little bit more, and also Theodore Blagan, who made the case for the importance of studying state and local history and regional history. Can you tell us about these figures and, and their role here at the Minnesota Historical Society? I've spent some time in, in the papers of Solenbach and, and Theodore Blegen, uh, particularly related to the work that I do in field services. And uh, both men uh, stated that by providing field services uh, to help locals uh, save and share their own history, um, you know, that sometimes and oftentimes really the best solution is to keep historical resources uh, in the places that uh, that, that they document uh, as much as possible. And uh, what both Buck and Blagan said was that the, the Minnesota Historical Society would be materially strengthened by providing field services. And what they meant by that, of course, is if we help others, we ourselves will grow as, as well. And that's been very true if you look at the last uh, 100 years of providing field services and the general growth and the budget and the complexity of the organization and, and so on. Uh, my studies of that across the country with the other state historical societies, the difference between those that provide field services and those that don't are, are very clear from a financial standpoint that uh, the bottom line uh, financially, which is what you need in order to operate, um, you know, is much stronger in those that provide field services. and. I think the, the long association with field services and the fact that they were developed here in the Midwest, um, you know, go a long ways to explaining why we're in the situation we are now. Last year, David, you visited all 87 county historical societies in Minnesota, which must have been a very fun trip. You would have been able to go up to the North Shore and Thunder Bay and out in western farm country. Can you tell us about that trip and what you found out by visiting all these local groups? Oh, sure. Um, so part of our job, of course, we take the, the word field in our field services quite literally, and we, we like to get out and probably spend about 30 or 35,000 miles a year on the road uh, working with local historical organizations. Minnesota is one of the few states in the country that has a, a countywide uh, history enterprise in each and every one of our counties and so uh, as we began to um, revitalize our field services program uh, we thought well now's a good time to take some uh, note as to where we stand in 2015 so largely it was Todd Mahan and I that that hopped in the car and had lots of long interesting conversations between uh, the cities but you're right the North Shore the Red River Valley uh, the the Root River area in the in the southeast, um, the 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 Great Plains to our southwest, and the Buffalo Ridge, and so on, magnificent places to visit. Um, we went to each and every one of these. We took baselines of two things while we were there. One about their facilities, 
Uh, how were those? How were those uh, situated? Um, are they accessible to the general public? Do they maintain a climate that's appropriate for preserving history, and so on? And then we also took a baseline on on governance. You've been involved, uh, David, with the American Association for State and Local History, which um, is uh, very active in promoting uh, the kind of research you're talking about here that is being done by the county historical societies. For those that are not familiar with it, can you talk a little bit about the State and Local History Association and what it does? Sure. That sprang out of the American Historical Association in 1940 and uh, has been serving state and local history interests ever since. Um, and it serves not only uh, museums and, and historical organizations and cities and that sort of thing, but also independent scholars and researchers because it's really about the history enterprise. Um, it publishes a, a magazine that's very useful to local organizations. It has developed the STEPS program, which stands for Standards and Excellence Program for Historical Organizations, which, by the way, was piloted here in Minnesota and in uh, Indiana. So it has a very strong Midwestern flavor to that program that uh, the STEPS program does. Uh, they, they have a number of other programs too, such as Visitors Count and uh, other uh, ways of grouping the work of, of historians and uh, history practitioners all across the country. It's uh, headquartered in Nashville, uh, so kind of just on the, the borderlands of the Midwest, um, and, and I think some of its strongest participation happens when they hold uh, their annual meetings in the Midwest and Southeast in mid-Atlantic, so it's, it's a very strong and active part of the country. Um, more thinly settled areas, of course, uh, attendance might be down a little bit, but by and large, it is a very strong, effective organization, and I've been very pleased to be associated with it for most of my career. I know that some historical societies are attempting to be more edgy in an era where everyone is on their iPhone or distracted by other digital media. For example, in Ohio, the Ohio uh, Historical Society recently became the Ohio Connection. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I've noticed similar moves by other historical societies. Do you think that's wise? Well, you know, time will tell um, on whether, you know, moving in any direction is a wise one. Um, I think digital and, and, you know, the eye devices and so on are things that are here to stay. Uh, so there's always been a conversation of, you know, exactly how much should we use those. And in some places, uh, you know, we're told to, to put those things away. In, in others, we're told, get them out and uh, use augmented reality. I think definitely we're, we're transitioning um, not away from virtual reality, but I think we're transitioning to uh, substantially adding to virtual reality by adding augmented reality. What does that mean? Well, I think the best way to describe augmented reality is to maybe uh, picture yourself on the Empire Builder uh, Amtrak train traveling through North Dakota, and you hold up your smartphone to the window, and you can see the buffalo herds of the past. Um, virtual reality, um, if I'm sitting here in St. Paul, I might be enjoying something in Hawaii, so I'm virtually there. But 
in augmented reality, it, it's I walk out of the, the history center here in St. Paul, I hold up my phone, and I can see the old Miller Hospital that used to stand on this site. Yes, I have noticed those, I, I, and I would enjoy those myself if I was on the train in North Dakota. So um, I look forward to those developments. Can you tell us a little bit about your um, involvement and education uh, in terms of history? I know um, you went to Mankato State and studied history there and did a lot of work here in, uh, in the Twin Cities at Metropolitan State. Can you tell us how you got to your current position as Director of Field Services? Sure. Um, Initially, I went into the into my college career thinking I'd get into the ministry, and, and it strikes me as strange today that I'm kind of an apostle for history running around the state where two or three of them are gathered together. Um, I try to be with them and, uh, um, and, and help them do what they do. But I soon left that and, and went to Mankato State, which is now uh, Minnesota State University, Mankato, and uh, studied with Dr. Bill Lass, who's a South Dakotan, uh, trained at, at UW-Madison. and uh, He really introduced me to Minnesota history, uh, invited me to, to start working in the Southern Minnesota Historical Research Center at, at uh, the Memorial Library. And uh, after that, I, I worked at some local historical organizations, Blue Earth County Historical Society of Mankato and Dakota County Historical Society of South St. Paul. I worked for the Minnesota Daughters of the American Revolution at the Henry Sibley Historic Site in, in Mendota. And uh, uh, wound up working at Fort Snelling May 1st of 96. Uh, so I was a, an interpreter. Um, how fun is it in history to, where they pay you to play with explosives? Um, and I, I wound up working in the library a little bit, uh, fetching books and driving a forklift to fetch uh, boxes of paper for researchers. Um, and I got to meet a lot of researchers and, and know more about them and came here to the Heritage Preservation Department uh, to work in grants and uh, uh, wound up being associated with the Field Services Program. Uh, as a result, and uh, while here, I, I decided, you know, if I'm going to be advising uh, local history enterprises on how to best operate, I should probably uh, go back to school and learn more about it. So I went to Metropolitan State University uh, for their Master's of Public and Nonprofit Administration program, and while there, I learned about the development of the Doctor of Business Administration program, and I said, well, put me on a list. I, I'm, I'm interested. And uh, in uh, 2011, my number was called, and, and so I went through that program and, and did a business dissertation on the, the finances of state historical organizations across the, the country and compared those that provide field services and those that don't. What was, in a nutshell, your conclusion? Uh, my conclusion was that if you provide field services, it will reflect back on your organization and result in much, much stronger uh, uh, total revenue uh, for your organization. You mentioned a minute ago Fort Snelling, and uh, I know that you've written a book about the famous Sibley family associated with Fort Snelling, but can you tell our listeners a little bit about your book and give them some context for Fort Snelling? Sure. Um, so Mendota 
is a, a little city. It's the oldest incorporated city in the state, and unlike everyone else in the state, uh, this one is federally incorporated. It's it's not done by the territory or the state. I think they followed up with that later, maybe in some legislation. But um, so it's a little uh, fur trading post uh, that sits at the junction of the Minnesota River and the Mississippi River near Pike Island, and across the river from it is historic Fort Snelling which was placed there uh, essentially to regulate the fur trade in the area. Uh, in those days, uh, Americans were on the reservation and Dakota people lived uh, commonly throughout the rest of the area. Um, and the, the fort was essentially there just to regulate the fur trade. And Henry Sibley came here as a fur trader in 1834. And so he was under the jurisdiction of the Indian agent at historic Fort Snelling. And the Daughters of the American Revolution uh, acquired the home in 1910, and it's one of the oldest uh, interpreted places in the state as a result. And they had the rare opportunity of talking to the children who grew up in the house uh, to restore it and get it open and tell the story to the public. But for those of us who were there in the 90s uh, talking about how the house operated and so on, uh, we basically told the story of Henry Sibley, businessman, um, uh, military leader, political leader, etc. And we barely mentioned uh, anything more about Sarah Sibley than she was his wife. And so the site manager said, well, drawing on your um, historian skills, could you write a paper about Mrs. Sibley so that we can tell more of her story in the house? And like many projects in our field, it got out of hand and it became a book. Uh, published by the Friends of the Sibley Historic Site, um, that uh, visitors to the site, if they're interested in more about Sarah's story than what can be related in a simple one-hour tour, uh, they can easily take that with them in the car, read it at the lake, pass it on to friends and relatives. Uh, I've heard from quite a number of mothers over the years who've bought it for their, their daughters or granddaughters for History Day projects and, and that kind of thing. So it's, that's all been very flattering to have. And today... My book, Six Miles from St. Paul, The Family and Society of Sarah Jane Sibley, is still the only biography of any of Minnesota's first ladies. Last summer, I took a trip to the North Shore of Minnesota, and uh, we spent a lot of time in Two Harbors and uh, Gooseberry Falls and all these famous places in Minnesota. Um, are there many of these interpretive sites um, that you've mentioned with regard to Fort Snelling and other places? Are there many of those interpretive sites on the North Shore? Well, there are quite a few. In fact, um, the North Shore Historical Assembly is probably one of the oldest uh, regional uh, groupings of, of historical organizations, those that, that, you know, that's their job to do. But you'll find others there. Anyone who does history along the North Shore goes to the, the North Shore Historical Assembly, which tends to meet every two to three years, um, and it's passed from site to site up and down the shore. I noticed that uh, every November there is a Edmund Fitzgerald event on the North Shore. Have you ever been to that? I've, I've never had the chance to go. Um, as a, a Lutheran here in the, the Midwest, um, that same day, November 10th, uh, happens to be Martin Luther's birthday, and, and so there's often things going on at church too. So it's a, it's a busy day, but the Gales of November is a very popular event. The lighting of the of Split Rock Lighthouse um, uh, in, in memory of that event uh, is something that a lot of people try to attend. S 
Split Rock Lighthouse is beautiful for any of our listeners who want to uh, go to the North Shore and see the sights. Be sure not to miss uh, Split Rock Lighthouse. Um, I wanted to ask you, David, too, about uh, your work for the Midwestern History Association. Uh, last year, you chaired the Hamlin Garland Committee, which gives a prize uh, for a book written in, it would have been 2015, um, about the Midwest uh, in a popular vein. That's the uh, mission of the Hamlin Garland Prize. Can you tell us a little bit about that process and the book you chose? Certainly. Uh, it, it was a very interesting process. I've, I've never gotten the chance to, to chair something like this. I've been associated with awards committees and so on in the past, so um, it seemed like a good fit and a good way for me to stretch as well. Uh, we received uh, about 20 uh, nominations uh, from various publishers and so on. It was a very tough decision to make. There were some awfully good books in there. Um, tried to balance the committee uh, with an academic, uh, someone like myself, and then uh, and someone working in the field. Um, and the three of us had a very long and robust discussion over a, a gigantic pile of books because we each received one copy of everything. And, and so you can imagine, you know, 60 plus volumes sitting on a table and the three of us uh, working through them and comparing them and uh, trying to determine, uh, you know, exactly uh, how popular popular should be and, and what to choose. Uh, at the end, uh, after a very long day of, of rich discussion over things, we wound up choosing Jeffrey Manuel's very fine book, Taconite Dreams, uh, about the extractive industry of mining ore in, in Minnesota's iron ranges. Um, it's, it's definitely well worth the read um, from the University of Minnesota Press. For the uninitiated in our audience, uh, what is taconite? Uh, taconite is, uh, well... On the Iron Range, they began to mine ore back in the 1880s, uh, and you know the the iron mines in northern Minnesota were a key factor in U.S. United States success in both world wars. Uh, you need a certain amount of metal not only to float on the waters and to armor your tanks, but also to uh, uh, send toward the enemy. Um, but as, as those supplies uh, of the pure uh, iron began to, to dwindle, um, there was a process developed of extracting even more iron out of the, out of the lower grade ore and to make it pure. And so uh, a process was developed to, to do that and to create taconite pellets uh, that then could be shipped to um, um, uh, iron facilities across the Midwest and into the Mid-Atlantic. If you're just joining us, uh, this is Heartland History. Our guest today is David Grabitsky, the Director of Field Services at the Minnesota Historical Society. Uh, today we are sitting in David's office uh, here in St. Paul, and behind him is a giant map of Minnesota. And I think uh, people forget how big Minnesota is and how uh, divided it is into iron range country, farm country, a big urban area, 
and uh, Indian reservation counties and all these northern lake recreation counties. It has a very interesting mix of people and activities. It does. And it's a real pleasure to be able to drive through them. We often think of the state kind of divided into three uh, areas. One is sort of the, the north woods and lakes area, which also includes the Iron Range, um, and a, a farm portion of the state that kind of is, uh, if you divide this, it looks like the, the letter K. So if you start at the upper left uh, top and work your way down to the lower right um, and everything, uh, southwest of that line is pretty much farm and everything else on the other side is pretty much north woods and, and lake but then like you said there's a large urban area too that's in that so those are the kind of the three parts of it and all across the state 86,000 square miles 12th largest state in the union uh, with uh, one county that, that's larger than the than the state of Rhode Island but uh, for perspective I once did a, a museum assessment in uh, in Barrow Alaska which is the uh, seat for um, the borough of the North Slope. And the borough of the North Slope is 92,000 square miles, slightly larger than the state of Minnesota. So essentially mm. a county that's larger than the state of Minnesota with uh, about 7,000 people in it. And here we have about five and a half million here in, in Minnesota. So all these scales are, are really interesting um, in, the, in the conduct of our history. I wanted to ask you, David, about a controversy that has recently made some news in the state of Minnesota, and I noticed it on uh, Twitter and social media. There was some discussion about it and some um, links to stories in the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and that controversy relates to uh, a decision by the governor of the state to remove Civil War paintings from the Minnesota Capitol. Can you describe this controversy for people and, and what the dynamics are? Sure. The The Minnesota State Capitol, uh, designed by Cass Gilbert, one of America's great uh, architects who originated here in St. Paul, um, it was essentially a memorial to uh, Civil War and Spanish-American War veterans. Um, and the governor's reception room has a series of paintings, six of which deal with Civil War subjects, and two with American Indian-related uh, subjects, uh, one being the Treaty of Traverse to Sioux, and the, uh, which was signed in, in what's now St. Peter, Minnesota. And then there's a painting about Father Hennepin and the first time he saw the Falls of St. Anthony, which he then named after St. Anthony of Padua. Um, there has been a decision, because the room is used for press conferences and so on, that um, as cameras catch uh, images of the two paintings that deal with American Indians, that there's really not an opportunity to uh, further explain why these paintings are done the way that they're done and, and so on uh, as they're caught on television. And so there's been a decision to relocate those within the Capitol and provide further uh, interpretation, but just to get them away from uh, television cameras. The governor, Mark Dayton, uh, sent a message to the Minnesota Historical Society uh, requesting that we approve also removing the six Civil War paintings uh, within that reception room. Minnesota Historical Society by statute has responsibility for the historical objects that are in the Capitol. The Capitol is a historic site. It's listed in the National Register of Historic Places and so on. Um, and so there was a discussion uh, held around those, 
And just yesterday, uh, the Minnesota Historical Society's council met uh, to decide uh, what should be done, uh, whether to uh, follow the governor's request or um, to recommend retaining them. There has been a, a committee meeting uh, working uh, for over a year now and uh, trying to figure out exactly what to do with, with these uh, paintings in the governor's reception room. It was their recommendation to retain the Civil War paintings in place. And, and so yesterday, after uh, the, the meeting here at the Minnesota Historical Society among what amounts to our board, our, our council, um, they agreed to uh, uh, accept the recommendation of this task force that was looking at the paintings. Uh, speaking of the Civil War and the state of Minnesota, this is the home of the famous first Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Could you tell our listeners about why that is a famous unit and why they should know about it? Minnesota is, is one of those interesting places where it, we always profess how much we love peace, and yet uh, Minnesota tends to be first and last in, in conflict, um, steady to the end for the, for the country. It just happened when the Civil War broke out that Governor Alexander Ramsey it was our second state governor, following Henry Sibley, the husband of the subject of my book. Um, Alexander Ramsey happened to be in Washington and, and immediately offered a thousand men for the defense of the nation. And so it's often said to be the very first of the volunteer units that were raised for uh, the Civil War. It uh, sacrificed itself essentially on the altar of freedom at Gettysburg uh, by plugging a hole, making a mad rush there were 260, 280, I forget the exact number, that rushed down uh, the slope and slammed into 1,600 Alabamians, uh, which gave the Union enough time to plug that gap and, and save the Union Army at Gettysburg and eventually turn the, the tide of war. It, uh, the survivors, the 47 of them that survived that charge, plus uh, another group of them that had been on detached duty, uh, and hadn't participated in the charge were then at the center of Pickett's charge on the third day and uh, captured uh, Marshal Sherman from St. Paul here captured one of the uh, Confederate battle flags which is in the collection of the Minnesota Historical Society but here we are on December 9th we're two days after the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor and just yards from us here on the grounds of the state capitol is a gun uh, from the USS Ward that fired the very first shot for the U.S. in World War II when it sighted a Japanese submarine trying to enter Pearl Harbor. So, first and last. We've been talking with David Grabitsky, the Director of Field Services at the Minnesota Historical Society. As David mentioned, it is December 9th, 2016. And uh, we thank you for tuning in to another episode of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Dana Brown. Thank you once again, David. Thanks, John. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history, 
You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.